Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is supported by the Jib Foundation. Good evening. The Prime Minister has significantly stepped up his language over the Solomon Islands security deal with Beijing. We're in a period of rising uncertainty. I share the same red line that the United States has when it comes to these issues. They send some bloke called Zed. Who's Zed? Is this pulp fiction or national security? Today's campaigning was a good old-fashioned economic arm wrestle. This is a triple whammy of skyrocketing inflation, falling real wages and rising interest rates. Jan Fran has issues breaking down the election one issue at a time. Brought to you by Irrational Fear. Hello and welcome to Jan Fran has issues. It is indeed the podcast where we break down the election one issue at a time. You guys may have noticed we were conspicuously absent last week and I blame our producers for catching covid that's mm. right. Both of them were down with COVID, Dan. Um, yeah. And that's our, why our producer to- happens to be Anthony Albanese. So uh, big, <laughs> big thank you. I'm so glad he's back to work so we can make this podcast. Hey, you know what I'm excited about this week, Jan? Yes, tell me. We've got the biggest brain on foreign policy and China in Australia on our podcast. Uh, and that brain happens to be in the body of Kevin Rudd. Yes, ma'am. That's exactly who we're going to be speaking to a little bit later in the show because the big issue that we are discussing is foreign policy, um, namely our relationship with China. And I don't think that there is a person on earth. I mean, that's a big call. There might be. But he's definitely one of um, the most skilled people, most knowledgeable people in this area. So he's coming up. It goes Kevin Rudd, then Xi Jinping. (laughs) That, yeah. They're the two people <laughs> that know the most. <laughs> so that's our big issue for the week. Before we get to the big issues, though, we always like to take issue with something. And what are we taking issue with this week, Dan? This week we are taking issue with a little thing called transphobia. I did not think that trans people playing sport was going to be a massive issue on the election campaign trail. 
I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you why you don't think that because it isn't a massive, massive issue at all. (laughs) Hey, there we go. That's the story. It's not really a massive issue at all. And yet we keep hearing about it. The only reason I'm kind of bringing it up today is because Catherine Deves, who is the candidate for the Sydney seat of Warringah, was interviewed uh, on 2GB this morning and I listened to it. Today's Friday. That's when we're recording the show. I listened to it and it just got my blood boiling and my blood pressure high and I have to keep it low. Um, Let's just listen to a snippet of um, some of her answers. Are you transphobic? Oh, of course not, Ben. Uh, This isn't, this isn't about that, this, this argument. It is about women and girls. I've never had, uh, you know, I mean, back in the early nineties, I was going to Mardi Gras, you know, I voted for same sex marriage. I don't have an issue with that. Okay. I have an issue with the whole th- I have an issue with everything that you just said there. Just because you've gone to Mardi Gras, just because you voted for same-sex marriage doesn't mean you can't be transphobic. Those two things can exist at the same time. But having said that, when someone asks, "Are you transphobic?" and she says, "Of course not. This is about women and girls." It's not about women and girls. It's about transphobia. And the yep. best way to know that it's about transphobia is to look at the past things that Catherine Deves has said and tweeted and commented. Uh, and made remarks on. Yeah, yeah. I, and, you know, people have been saying this is going to be, you know, a way that Scott Morrison can, you know, play the electorate at a larger scale, you know, a signal to conservatives that, you know, that that they are, they too are transphobic. I don't know if that's a good strategy or not. I, I think Australians are a lot better than, you know, their internal polling suggests. Um, there is no excuse for transphobia in our parliament, Jan. Um, but when it comes to public support of Catherine Deves in Warringah, it's pretty interesting to kind of see the grassroots support that she's drummed up. Um, have a listen to this campaign rally. She, we love Catherine. She is our candidate. Okay? One, two, three, go. She's our candidate. Yes, for Warringah. That's it. Oh, my God. A force to be reckoned with on the political scale in Warringah. Zali Stegel, you got to be packing your bags right now. Get out of that office, babe. Move over. Catherine Deves is in the house and her army of supporter. Yeah, I think there was me. <laughs> that joke is much funnier than the one that I was about to make. You've narrowed the supporter down to one. I had them at about five. But, no, I think you're more in the ballpark there. That's my issue this week that, the fact that trans people are just being brought up as political footballs in this, you know, election campaign when they don't have to be, it's completely unnecessary. And it kind of, I don't know, I feel, I just, I feel so gross about it. Can we leave the commentary about trans people in sports to the experts and the endocrinologists and the sporting bodies that have been dealing with this and and regulating this for a while now? Not Catherine Deves, no more Catherine. Jan Fran has issues. The one thing that definitely is an issue this week is foreign policy mm. or regional stability or, I don't know, call it whatever you want to call it. Yeah, Jan, whenever you, talk, whenever you say the issue we're going to deal with, it often, often with this government it's like the issue we're going to deal with or lack thereof <laughs> the issue is that we're going to deal policy. with or, or, or fuck up completely. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been on the agenda this week because of a deal that has been signed between China and the Solomon Islands, and we're going to get into that in a second and why it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a problemo for Australia. Mm. I will say that. Um, but when it comes to... Australian foreign policy, I think the big question 
is around our relationship with China, or rather our increasing lack of relationship with China. There's a certain foreign country getting a few more mentions on the campaign trail than any of the others. It's China. 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 Yes, China. China. Our relationship with China is an election issue. That's why you've heard about it on the campaign trail. This deal between China and the Solomons, what we see is a foreign policy failure on our doorstep. That's why you heard about it during the Morrison-Albanese debate last week. Why would you take China's side? Well, let's let's get oh. Mr Albanese's view on it. Have you taken China's side on this? That's an outrageous slur from the Prime Minister. And that's why you heard about it on Anzac Day by our Defence Minister, Peter Duff. Chinese, uh, through their actions, through their words, uh, on a very deliberate course at the moment, and uh, we have to stand up with countries to, to stare down any act of aggression to make sure that we can keep peace Uh, in our region and for our country. So why are we talking so much about China and why should you care when you head to the ballot box in May? Well, if you want to get dramatic, it's only world peace that's at stake. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, that was that was an exaggeration. I'm very, very stressed. No, it's because our relationship with China is a matter of national security. And in the past few years, there have been some, let's call them incidents, that have caused that relationship to deteriorate. A lot. Here are a few of them. In 2020, we called for an international investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. China did not like that. So China, we believe, was singled out for the review. We don't think it is fair. Also, in 2020, China kicked out all Australian accredited journalists, which meant that for the first time in 50 years, there were no Aussie media journos in China. That same year, a Chinese government official tweeted a doctored image of an Australian soldier holding a knife to the throat of an Afghan child. Morrison got very mad about this. The Chinese government should be totally ashamed of this post. Australia is seeking an apology from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Yeah, that apology never came. Then there was the time that we ordered $90 billion worth of submarines from the French, but decided, last minute, that we were going to buy them from the Yanks and Brits instead. In fact, we were going to form a defence alliance called AUKUS. Now, how do you suppose China reacted to Australia forming a military pact with the other world superpower, one that would allow us access to nuclear subs? Yeah, it didn't love it. Which brings me to the latest point of tension, and that is a clandestine deal signed between China and the Solomon Islands that could see a Chinese military presence approximately 2,000 kilometres off the Australian coastline. If that happens, it'll be the first time since World War II that we have had a strategic rival within striking distance of our shores. Labor is calling it... It's the worst foreign policy blunder in the Pacific that Australia has seen since the end of World War II. Morrison says we did all we could, but there are limits. One of the things you don't do in the Pacific is you don't throw your weight around. Who to believe and who to vote for if you care about this stuff? Well, turns out Labor and the Coalition have similar-ish policies here. So both have pledged to ramp up defence spending. Both support the AUKUS deal. Both are very aware that China is our largest economic partner. By far, neither has concrete plans to change that. Labor tends to spend more on foreign aid. It's upping its commitment to the Pacific, for example. The Coalition tends to do more chess beating, which is why you get the Defence Minister saying batshit things like this. 
The only way uh, that you can you can preserve peace is, is to prepare for war. What does that even mean? Are we going to war with China? And where does our best mate, the US, fit into all of this? If shit hits the fan, they've got our back. Right? Right? Yeah, some very mm. zany music there for what could be an absolutely horrendous scenario <laughs> in the future. We like to keep things light on this podcast. You know how it is. If you don't laugh, you cry, Jen. Exactly right. And, uh, you know, that, that question of, are we going to war, said in a very distressed voice, there's probably no person better qualified to answer that than the man that has been obsessed with China since he first studied it as an undergraduate at 18 years of age. Any guesses? Oh, well, we've already blamed We know, we know who it is. <laughs> yeah, he also does happen to be a former Prime Minister of Australia. Just a small detail there. Yeah. Talking about Mandarin aficionado, that's the language, not the fruit. Kevin Rudd! <laughs> Yay! Welcome to the potty, Kevin Rudd. How are you guys? Hey, welcome back. Before we start, though, I think we just we just need to prove that you are, in fact... Kevin Rudd. So we're going to need you to answer these next three sentences with just one word in a way that only Kevin Rudd can, frankly. Mm, yeah, because a lot of, lot of misinformation out there. Uh, there's a lot of podcast guests who say they are, but it's usually AI. But we just want to make sure that <laughs> the Kevin Rudd we're talking to is the real Kevin Rudd. I am not a Russian plant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's put my mind at ease so far. Here we go. Finish these sentences with one word. Rupert Murdoch is a... Cancer on democracy. Oh, interesting C word. I didn't expect that C word. Yeah. Also four words. I'm just going to do a quick inventory there. When I think of 2010, the one emotion that sums it up is? Shit. (laughs) And finally, the most important issue for the 2022 election campaign is? Corruption. Okay. Mm. I, I mean, this sounds like Kevin Rudd to me. Yeah, it sounds like Kevin Rudd think, to me. Ding, ding, ding. Kevin, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Jan Fran Has Issues. Thank you, thank you very much. I'm also here because I too have rational fears. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> okay, so I kind of, I just want to ask you this question straight off the bat. Um, are we going to war? Because Peter Dutton reckons that we should be prepping for it. So I'm just I'm 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 not quite sure what we're prepping for here. Is it is it happening? Are we going to war? Now what we're prepping for is um <clears throat> Dutton's concerned about the majority in his own seat uh of Dixon in <clears throat> the outer suburbs of Brisbane. That's what he's prepping for because he wants to run a khaki election with lots of hairy chestedness uh in order to make himself look super macho. Uh in order to uh, sustain his majority. And secondly, that's the general liberal strategy nationwide. I just think everyone needs to pop a collective mogadon. Um, <laughs> the, the bottom Hang line. Hang on, what, uh, what, 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 what is that? a direct question. So it's basically uh, a distraction tactic from the election. This is why we're hearing so much about war. This is why we're hearing about the US-China tension so much in this election. But it feels like a lot of people are talking about this outside of Australia too, Kevin. Like it doesn't actually, like if you read a lot of international press, it doesn't feel like that it is a domestic media issue. You see, it's possible to be both. You see, there is, if you look at the book I've just written called The Avoidable War Between China and the United States, there are a whole series of objective challenges we all face with China's rise, China's growing military power, 
it's economic leverage, it's uh, economic coercion, and a whole range of other ideological challenges coming out of an authoritarian Leninist state, now projecting its influence and power in the region and the world. Now, that presents a series of what I describe as objective national security policy and foreign policy challenges for Australia, around which there should be a rational debate. That's quite different from engaging in a daily exercise in domestic megaphone politics, Mm. screaming about the question from the top of your lungs in order to, frankly, shift the domestic political agenda uh, for this uh, critical 2022 election. But the the thing is, um, I I sort of have to be honest with you, Kevin, like when I go to the ballot, I feel weird calling you Kevin because you are the former Prime Minister of Australia and I feel like I should be calling you like your honour or something. So is, are you happy for me to call you Kevin? Is that is that okay? That's far more polite than what most people call me. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. But when I go to the to the ballot box, like Australian foreign policy is not usually very high on my list of issues to think about and I think there'd probably be a lot of Australians who are in that category. Like they could think of a bunch more things that are more pressing to them than that. I feel like this time round, it it does feel a little bit different though. Like Russia is at war with Ukraine. So many people thought, nah, that's not going to happen. And it did. And it's awful. And it feels like a lot of our regional relationships are increasingly strained. So I don't know, like, am, am I am I just overly stressed or are things particularly antagonistic at this moment? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's objective changes in the region and the world. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, albeit in Europe, <clears throat> is a salutary reminder that large-scale war is not a thing of the 20th century. Uh, It's alive in the 21st century. And that war is an active option for China and its future dealings with Taiwan, for example. And when you look to our regional relationships, all of them are having to deal with the single phenomenon, which is China's strategic and economic rise and asserting its power and influence. We're not Robinson Crusoe. What I'm arguing is that there's a rational series of responses to that challenge for which Peter Dutton ripping off his shirt and showing everybody that he's got more chest hair than Emmanuel Macron um, is not a rational response to an objective national security challenge. Take the South Pacific, for example. Mm. Why was China able to walk into the Solomons? There are several answers to that. One is the Pacific Island countries now for the better part of a decade have seen the Conservative government in Canberra cut their economic aid year after year, take hundreds of millions of dollars out. And for small island developing states, that represents a huge whack on their annual budget. Secondly, if you ignore what the region says, the island states say about the existential nature of the climate change challenge, it further erodes Australia's standing in these capitals. Thirdly, if you cut off Radio Australia, which has been a shortwave radio broadcasting service into the region since the Second World War, which is what this government did only a few years ago, Australia's voice into the region stops as well. And finally, if you don't take these individual leaders seriously by spending a lot of time in their capitals and having them come regularly to Canberra, then frankly, you're dropping the ball as well. China was able to walk into a vacuum which this government created. Had they not created the vacuum, it would have been much harder for China to do so. That's what I mean about a textured, rational, uh, real national security debate rather than running around, ripping your shirt off and going... Um, <laughs> oh, my God. I'm that mental image. I just have to poke out my mind's eye for a second about that one. 
it's interesting, um, you know, we talk about climate a lot on this podcast and how the Pacific relates to Australia on climate is incredibly tension-filled conversation. But it feels weird that they would, particularly in the Solomon, sign up to an agreement um, with China who are, you know, the biggest climate polluters in the world. How, how do you think they reconcile that? How do you think, like, Honiara reconciles that conversation? Because for them, it's not simply a um, uh, a mechanistic calculation of who's got the biggest greenhouse gas emission footprint. What I'm saying is what they do notice, however, is change in Australia's national position. Australia and New Zealand have been the preferred strategic, economic and climate change partners of the 13 island states of the Pacific Island Forum, really since the Second World War. Um, in the period that we're in office... We actually acted as the spokesman for Pacific Island concerns on coastal inundation and keeping global temperature increases underneath two degrees centigrade. That's the position that I took to, with actually the government of the Maldives, uh, to the um, Copenhagen Conference on Climate Change in 2009. So in the minds of the island states, they have seen a government, which was our government, which was there in the trenches with them fighting the fight globally to bring down greenhouse gas emissions, to keep temperature increases below two degrees centigrade this century, to prevent Tuvalu, Kiribati and the Marshall Islands from disappearing, for example. And they contrast that with the Morrison government, which has laughed at them. Remember Peter Dutton laughed publicly about the, um, the sound of water lapping at their feet. He laughed publicly. Can you imagine how that was broadcast across the region? in terms of how uh, regional governments saw the indifference of this government under Abbott, most recently under Morrison, holding up a piece of coal in the Australian Parliament as symbolic of his approach to climate change. So this is not a justification for China's, as it were, net virtue or vice on climate change action. It is simply saying the region's perception is that Australia has changed, and my argument is that's created the vacuum. Okay, you're, you've written a book called The Avoidable War, um, which looks at, you know, a, a, a po- well, I'm not going to say it looks at a war between the US and China, but looks rather at how to avoid a war between the US and China. I just, I, I hate going to worst case scenarios, but let's just do that for a second. Um, if that does happen, what does that actually mean for Australia? Because it feels like we are hugely piggy in the middle in this situation. We're very aligned to the states in some ways. We're very economically aligned to China in in other ways. Where does that leave us? Well, in terms of core national security policy, it leaves us with an existential question, which is, uh, does Australia at that stage respond to a direct American request for military help in a military scenario arising from a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or some associated Mm. measure against Taiwan or not. Um, If Australia does not respond militarily, the operational future of the ANZUS alliance would be threadbare. Um, So for those sorts of reasons, it becomes an existential decision, not just for Australia, by the way, but also for US uh, treaty allies elsewhere in the region, namely Japan, the Republic of Korea and elsewhere. That's why everyone focuses on this Taiwan scenario. So I just I just want to get my head clearer about this Taiwan scenario because Taiwan seems like a very strategic um, piece of this puzzle. Um, R- Russia has invaded Ukraine. 
that's happened. Is that a precedence for China possibly invading Taiwan? And I know that you've said that it's it's a possibility. You've even given a, a potential date at the end of the 20s or maybe the beginning of the 30s. That is very soon, Kevin, um, uh, and, and, and quite terrifying. I mean, um, what happens if China were to invade Taiwan? Where, again, where, where does that kind of leave us and, and how strong is our alliance with the United States to, um, for them to come in and help? Well, let's um, to unpack that in two or three different ways. One is, um, could it happen? Um, the bottom line is yes, because it's stated Chinese government policy uh, to return Taiwan to PRC sovereignty. And the only question is, is that done by peaceful or military means and by when? Secondly, if I look closely at Xi Jinping's language and Chinese active military preparedness, they're the two things on which I base my calculus that I'm deeply worried about China pushing the, the switch to go late 20s, early 30s, when they believe that the military, economic and financial circumstances then would be maximally advantageous for China over the United States uh, and over Taiwan itself. Thirdly, where does that leave Australia? Um, and this is why I um, am appalled by Dutton's reckless use of language about the drumbeats of war, about uh, war being just around the corner, about Australia inevitably finding itself in a war over Taiwan. No previous Australian defence minister, foreign minister or prime minister has ever been as reckless in their language on this as Dutton has. Neither Howard government nor Howard's predecessors, certainly not my government, certainly not Turnbull's government, even Abbott's government, God bless his soul. Uh, did not um, engage in this. He's not dead, just quietly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> politically dead, politically dead, yeah. It is not something to just pop out for a Sunday newspaper story in this country as, as if it's a piece of light political entertainment and political distraction strategy because what is said in this country by the Defence Minister of the Commonwealth of Australia is read carefully in Beijing. Mm. So that is why successive foreign and defence ministers and prime ministers have buttoned their lip on this question because if push came to shove and the balloon went up, there are a whole series of very difficult decisions which would then need to be made because such a conflict would be the most intense military conflict that Australia has seen in the Pacific since the Second World War. Since we're so economically tied to China, Kevin, would and, you know, we have ANZUS in place. ANZUS is, in my opinion, pretty threadbare, aside from just the history of us participating in it. Would it be okay if we tapped America on the shoulder and went, hey, um, hey, Joe, I think, uh, I think we're out of this one? <laughs> well, because I'm a former prime minister and a former foreign minister, I don't publicly speculate on the nature of what Australia could or should do under those circumstances. What I'm saying, however, it's a pretty existential choice. If the Americans made the request and Australia denied it, that would kind of be the end of the ANZUS Treaty. Hmm. Now, your point is, does it really matter? The only point I'd make on that is that below the surface, the advantages which Australia derives from its treaty relationship with the United States not least the Five Eyes Arrangement on Intelligence Sharing, uh, provides Australia with 360-degree intelligence vision of our wider region and the world in terms of this stuff and other stuff which really cuts across our core day-to-day -day interests. So it would be a very um, 
critical question for the government of the day to evaluate all those factors in terms of making a decision about how to respond to an American request over Taiwan. Mm. The the other thing I keep thinking about in all of this, um, especially as there's been a whole, like like we said, bunch of incidents, particularly over the last two years, where China has pissed off Australia and Australia has pissed off China. China is our biggest trading partner. We rely on them um, very heavily economically. I mean, like, can we literally afford to piss them off? Do we have a contingency plan if they get so pissed off that they say, you know what, we're just not going to buy your shit anymore? <laughs> well, um, uh, Dutton's contingency plan is always to do another exclusive interview with Murdoch Media that Sunday. Uh, that's his contingency plan to make himself look even more hairy-chested. Here's the question, though. Um, Australia is a proud country and we are proud of um, our liberal democratic inheritance, the fact that we actually believe in universal human rights and the fact that we believe in the principles of international law and the principles of international law hold that you shouldn't just go around and invade other countries. And that reflects who we are as Australians. Therefore, if the Chinese in the future engage, continue to engage in coercive economic diplomacy, which is we will cease to buy X, Y, and Z from you if you continue to give us foreign policy grief on A, B, and C. In which they've already put tariffs on things like wine and barley, so there's things happening, yep. Uh, that's true. And as I'm saying, if they continue to do that, and there's a whole range of agricultural and other commodities uh, where they have done that, the bottom line is, yes, there is an economic price to pay, but what price freedom? The problem with... Um, foreign policy incompetence of the Morrison government and, um, and Dutton is not just, A, they just continue to mouth off when you don't need to mouth off all the time. You should only engage in direct uh, statements of Australian government policy when it's necessary to do so. <laughs> I used to do that, not just for the purpose of feeding the Murdoch beast every Sunday newspaper in order to make yourself look very chested. But the second is this. Let's just say you're going to have a future disagreement with the Chinese on a major trade and foreign policy question. Practical wisdom suggests you do so in partnership with a whole bunch of other countries at the same time. Mm. And the reason for that is that it's far easier for China to pick off one country than to deal, for example, with a group of 35. The Europeans always hunt in packs. They hunt as the European Union. <laughs> we, under this government, we've chosen not to. And I would say that is just dum 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 dum. Yeah. Uh, so look, uh, look. I don't know if Dutton has the ability to just call up Xi Jinping. And go, hey, mate. What I said before that was just I was just trying to get the people of Chisholm on my side. I was I was actually Chisholm yesterday, and, <laughs> and uh, talking to local Chinese community at Box Hill. We're going to be worried about some of this um, rhetoric from the likes of Dutton. Is that it can in fact fan a racist sentiment towards patriotic. Uh, Chinese Australians, patriotic Asian Australians who are just as Australian as anybody else. I mean, and that community is so vulnerable right now given what just has occurred over the last couple of years with COVID. So anything to not exacerbate that would be a good thing. Just quickly, let's talk about the election before you run away. Uh, there seems to be a huge dissatisfaction with the major parties. They're both polling in the 30s. Um, what is this looking like for the electorate? What is your mind's eye, think, heading into this, this campaign with such disaffection of both major parties at such such lows? You mean like Cyclops, just one eye, or have I got two eyes? Uh, well, I think if you, I, I would assume you have eyes everywhere. You're like, uh, you're like Oz Kanzukas, you know, you're, you're the five eyes. <laughs> That's very funny. The overwhelming 
mood that I get from the community is that after nearly 10 years in office, there's a mood for change. Uh, you dig beneath the surface. It's along these lines that um, they don't like the smell of corruption coming out of Canberra. They're worried about that. And secondly, they're worried about the fact that the current federal government refuses to legislate a national anti-corruption body. And at least they've registered that the Australian Labor Party is now committed to doing that. So when I dig into it, cost of living pressures, when I dig into it in terms of the overall state of Australia's security, there is a concern about this. Is Australia more prosperous than it was three years ago or less? Is Australia more secure than it was three years ago or less? Is it more secure than it was nine years ago or less? Is it more corrupt than it was nine years ago or less? And therefore, that creates a mood of change. They may vote Labor, Independent or Green to reflect that uh, response. But at the end of the day, our system is a two-party preferred vote. And, and if I look at the opinion polls so far, Labor Party for about six months now has been ahead somewhere between 53 and 55%. Still very tight. And the fear campaign, courtesy of Dutton, Harry Chess, China, Spooky music and the rest is still to come. You wait for the ads in the last uh, two weeks; they'll be beauties. How many? Um, how, how many throw the remote at the television moments have you had during this election campaign? <laughs> be honest. You know something? I actually don't watch the television, and uh, and uh, really, yeah, Jan, Jan, Kevin's like all the other boomers. He sits on an iPad <laughs> on the couch and yells at his <laughs> iPad. Right. Uh, I, I get a bit of a summary. So, but you know something? If I did, uh, we'd probably be changing screens because the way in which I throw stuff, it would go right through. <laughs> <laughs> and Kevin, Kevin also doesn't have remotes. He's got a selection of hair dryers. Oh, so dusty. Hey, I need to pin you down on that. On the hair dryer story, given that you've raised it and the, and the Murdoch beast, this is a classic example. So Murdoch enters the hair dryer story as a Kevin Rudd meme into the Australian political vernacular. And if I said to you today, A, it never happened, B, there was no hair dryer, C, it was invented by a bunch of visiting Liberal politicians, and C, the uh, local military confirmed it never happened, and D, even the some of the Murdoch journalists said it was all bullshit. The power of the Murdoch monopoly is to insert these memes into collective consciousness. That's um, what they do. I apologise for bringing it back up. That was a, a very cheap joke. I'm so sorry. And only, only six people would have gotten it. <laughs> you were one of them, Kevin. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And besides, I've used my hair dryer this morning. My hair looks quite nice. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you've got a great mane. You've got a, you've got a zhuzh it up. You've got something to help you with the upkeep. You got, you get, look, when you, get, when you hit 60, as I have, the zhuzh becomes quite important. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> hey, how would you rate um, Anthony Albanese's performance so far? Give him, give him a rating out of 10. You can't say 10 because you're compromised. You have to give him... You have to give him a different a different number. Well, if I'm giving um, Morrison three out of ten, I give Albo eight out of ten, and for one reason, uh, Albo tells it like it is. He's truthful, and the other guy is just a rolling spin machine, who who can't tell when he's stopped spinning and marketing because he is Scotty for marketing. So Albo may get the odd right, line wrong, but you know most people in politics do. I've screwed up answers to twenty questions. In the election that I faced, I think it was 2007, some jerk from News Corporation asked me the question, uh, will you list the four different tax thresholds in the income tax system uh, <laughs> and uh, not just the threshold but the rates for each of them? Well, off the top of my head, I probably got three of the four right. 
uh, but I probably got the fourth wrong. The next morning's papers were Rudd's $48 billion gas. So there you go. Mm. <laughs> I'm starting to think that you don't care much for this Rupert Murdoch character. Well, when I said cancer on democracy, that was me in charitable mode. <laughs> They're just a protection racket for the Liberal Party. Just before we let you go, because we know that uh, you, you have to dash, if there's um, one thing that you could say to our audience, predominantly youngish audience, under 40, we're all heading to the polls, May 21, just around the issue of foreign policy, what would be the one thing that you would counsel our audience to think about before they go into the ballot box? It would be this. In our region, the prospect of armed conflict between China and the United States is becoming more and more of a possibility. Therefore, what you want in Canberra is a government which is sober-minded in analysing what that means each step of the way for the Australian national interest rather than a bunch of jingoistic fools. That's pretty good. And um, it lacked a little detailed programmatic specificity, but I think it was a pretty good answer. Well, I could go full programmatic specificity for you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'd love you to, but you don't have the time. You've got a dash and we've got to let you go. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great chatting to you. Thanks so much, guys. See you next time. Thank you, Kevin. Before you go, can you say, uh, got a zip? Speaking from Mokpa, I've got a zip. Jan Fran has issues. Oh, I love a got a zip. Takes me right back to 2009. How great to have Kevin Rudd, such a brain on foreign policy in China, with us here on Jan Fran has issues. Yeah, I mean, it's a, the, the one thing that sort of struck me is that I think both the major parties, well, all all of the parties in Australia, sort of know that you know things are a little bit unstable at the moment. One just seems to run its mouth a little bit more than the other. and <laughs> in, Yeah, in the words of uh, Kevin Rudd, one seems to be a little hairy-chested. Yeah. That's <laughs> what was, his, what was hair- his obsession with hairy-chested? As a hairy-chested person <laughs> myself, you know, I, I don't mind that kind of conversation. It's great. But he certainly said hairy-chested uh, about 300 times. And that's, uh, you, know, that, you know, that is Kevin Rudd. More chest hair than Emmanuel Macron with lots of hairy-chestedness. Courtesy of Dutton, hairy chest and more hairy-chested. Ripping your shirt off and going, Weird election history. Weird election election history. Weird election election history. We're going to get this one day. We're going to get it right. Weird election history, baby. Uh, yes, this is a segment we like to call Weird Election History. Uh, however, this segment's not so much about weird election history, just weird history in general. And it's the history of our very close relationship. We've talked about China. This time it's the history of our very close relationship with the other major superpower in the world, the United States. And we happen to have a uh, producer who is from the United States of Ooh, America. la-di-da. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who drew our attention to the fact that there's something called a Kegel <laughs> <laughs> that exists in the world that I had absolutely no idea about. It is not and what it, you think. <laughs> it's not what you think. No, I have a lot of ideas about those Kegels because I have to do them on the regular, <laughs> given that I'm about to have a baby in two months. But this other Kegel, I'm going to let our producer, Frank Lopez... Explain. Take it away, Frankie. Australia, or as I like to call it, British Texas. 
a country that's as big as America with a population the size of Florida. Our kid brother at the ass end of the world. The bond between our countries is as old as apple pie and as rich as a spoonful of Vegemite. <sighs> Salty. Our friendship just makes sense. We have so much in common. Manifest destiny? Terranolius. Check. Strong national pride? It is indeed okay to be white. Check. A never-ending belief in freedom? Mate, I'll punch as many kangaroos as I want. Check. You even have your own Canadians. Oh, Hebrew. You've given us some of your greatest art. And inspired some of ours. Nice. That's a knife. And wherever we go, you're never far behind. In Korea, in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. In every conflict. Our love affair began on the battlefields of World War I, when American and Australian soldiers fought side by side for the first time, achieving victory in just 90 minutes and turning the tide on the war. On that day, we learned a valuable lesson. Together, we could kill just about anything. To mark the 100-year anniversary, you gave our special relationship an official name, Mateship. Now all we needed was a mascot. A mascot that would strike fear into the hearts of our enemies. A symbol worthy of the bond that we could slap on commemorative pins and mugs and even totes. Using the latest Monsanto GMA technology, fueled by Aussie coal fire power stations, we combined our greatest apex predators, the eagle and the kangaroo, armed with the talons of an eagle and the bum bag of a kangaroo. This friendship Frankenstein would be known as the Kegel. Do yourself a favor. Google 100 Years of Mateship and feast your eyes on freedom in animal form. But the Kegel almost never happened. At the start of World War II, a couple of loose nights in Brisbane almost ended our mateship before it even began. Brisbane, 1942. During the war, Australia became home to over a million U.S. troops. The Americans were headquartered in Brisbane. To accommodate the Yanks, the city was fortified, schools were closed, and many families sold their homes and moved inland. But while the Aussies were living thin, the Yanks were living it up. Fancy uniforms, higher pay, and access to cigarettes, candy, and the always popular silk stockings meant that Aussie women were falling over themselves for a night with Uncle Sam. Oi! Sweet cheeks! You got any dice? Broke, and not a Sheila in sight, the Aussie troops whinged that the Americans were overpaid, oversexed, and over here. To add fuel to the fire, Racial tensions were high in a still-segregated U.S. military, and violent discipline was all too common in the U.S. ranks. All this meant Brisbane was hot, and I don't mean the temp. With reports of 20 brawls a night, shootings on trains, and constant violence in the streets, the stage was set for war. All it needed 
was a spark. On November 26th, a group of Australian soldiers witnessed a confrontation between a drunken American private and the military police. The MP raised his baton and the Aussies rushed him. And so began the Battle of Brisbane. In minutes, the whole street dives in and an angry crowd of Aussies, 2,000 strong, hurl bottles, rocks, and anything else they can get their hands on at the Americans. The Americans respond in the only way they know how. They grabbed a bunch of shotguns. In the midst of the scuffle, an American shoots an Australian in the chest, killing him instantly. The battle that ensued will leave eight people shot and hundreds injured, one reporter stated. And the most furious battle I saw was that night in Brisbane. It was like a civil war. The next night, thirsty for vengeance, hundreds of Aussie troops attack any American in sight. On Queen Street, a group of soldiers armed with batons ran into 20 USMPs who formed a firing line and drew their guns. Before things got out of hand, a brave Australian officer saved the day and reminded us what mateship was really about. Ah, oh, mate, can't we just be bloody fucking friends? Why are we fighting each other when there's a whole world out there? We could be fighting together. Realizing their anger was better placed elsewhere, the two sides laid down their weapons and picked up a punt. And while we'll never know where our two countries would be today without that brave Australian officer, one thing's for sure. We are mates. Wow. What, hey. an, what an epic story. I didn't know any of that. And I did several of those voiceovers. <laughs> <laughs> no, neither neither did I. The Battle of Brisbane. Well, wow. it's got us to where we are today. 100 years of mateship. That's yeah. A, that's a little bit of history there for you. If you want to see the Kegel, sign up to the Irrational Fear newsletter, irrationalfear.com, and we'll put a picture of the Kegel in there. We, we might not write Kegel in the newsletter just so it doesn't confuse SEO because that would be weird, people Googling for Kegel, Kegels and coming across the kangaroo and eagle. But it's great. I sent it, I sent the Kegel to my friend at the State Department. Uh, I have a source at the State Department. I said, is this is this true? They call this the Kegel? He said, yeah. I, I wondered how much Joe Hockey paid a PR firm to develop it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know what, Australia and the United States, we love each other. You love eagles. We love kangaroos. What can we do here? How can we possibly merge them together? <laughs> and there you have the Kegel. Well, that is it for Jan Fran Has Issues. Jan, thank you for joining us on your birthday. <laughs> oh, I thought it was going to go unnoticed, but you remembered. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Thank you for working on your birthday. Really appreciate it. Also, a big thank you to all of our Patreon s- supporters who signed up this week. My goodness, there were a lot of you who signed up. There is simply no time to say all your names. I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we, we do something next week. Um, also, keeping keep in mind, if you live in Sydney, June 4, we have our 10-year anniversary show at the Opera House. So please come along to that. We've got Alice Fraser, Lewis Hobber, Mark Humphreys, uh, me, Dan Illich, and also Sammy Shah is going to be joining with us and uh, hopefully Paul McDermott too. So it's going to be an absolutely huge show at the Opera House. Uh, our gear is by Road Mics and big thank you to the Gadigal people of the Euronation and where Jan and I record. Uh, Jan, you want to thank anyone? 
Um, well, I'd like to thank two people who do not have COVID this week. Hooray! Our producers, F and K Media, the best producers in the business. Um, they're the ones that put this show together. And we love them. And also a big thank you to the Jib Foundation. Uh, we couldn't make this podcast without you. Next week, we're going to be talking about climate, which is my favourite issue. <laughs> Jan, do you know I'm banned from ABC panel shows because I believe in climate action? No, I had, I had no idea. I just thought they banned you because they hated you. <laughs> well, maybe. Hmm. And remember to vote rationally. You call that a knife? This is a knife. That's not a knife. That's a spoon. All right, all right, you win. <laughs> I see you've played knifey spoony before. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.